Nash Edgerton first made his name as an accomplished and highly sought-after stunt actor, with credits that include two Star Wars movies, all three Matrix movies, Zero Dark Thirty, Superman Returns, and many more. When he first started, he needed a showreel to get jobs, but couldn't make a reel because he wasn't booking any jobs. So he made his first reel by writing, shooting, and editing his own made-up movie clips. Thereafter, he started making short films and directing music videos, amongst others for Bob Dylan and for Brandon Flowers. He went on to direct two feature films and three full seasons of the phenomenal TV show Mr. In Between, which you can find on FX. Nash is always busy, and I'm grateful that he found the time to speak with me about his career and his approach to filmmaking. Nash, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, thanks, man. You too. I read that you and your brother made movies as as kids. And of course, you both became filmmakers, actors, writers. Though I believe that when you were growing up, your father was a lawyer and your mom uh, was a homemaker. To yeah. what do you attribute your shared love of filmmaking, you and your brother? When dad bought a, like a Betamax camera. Remember Betamax? Yeah, of course. You know, like around when VHS started. Like, so he had a Betamax camera. And I think he bought that sometime around when we were 10 and uh so he would make stuff you know just shoot home movies and things like that and i think and you know video stores started around that time you know in what was it like 83 or something here and so it was it was a combination of getting access to movies that you know we were probably too young to see in the cinema and um, my dad having a camera and living on, you know, a bit of acreage and and just starting to play around with that. You know, my parents both love watching movies, I guess. And that's what kicked it off. All of a sudden you had uh, access to a lot of movies that you previously couldn't watch. Um, are yeah. there any movies? Do you recall any in particular that made an impact on you as a kid? Yeah, American Wealth in London. Oh really? I remember that. Yeah. I remember watching that as a kid. I uh, I remember being scared. I remember some of the nudity. Yeah, that was like it wouldn't have been something I would have been allowed to go to the cinema to see. But and my mom just was like okay with my brother and I just grabbing movies to watch, and she was very much into like revenge movies, you know, and like films like Death Wish and stuff. We got to see those kind of movies early on because she didn't want to watch them by herself, so she'd get us to watch them. <laughs> and they would freak us out. But we, uh, um, I uh, believe you were uh, beginning to study electrical engineering when you decided to take a shot at becoming a, a stuntman. What was it about being a stuntman that attracted you? You know, I don't know. I probably I watched like guy and Dukes of Hazard and things like that, you know, as a kid. And I'd been playing a lot of sport and I was, you know, I was always like jumping off the roof of the house and jumping out of the tree and climbing things and riding my BMX bike. And I was a very physical kid and I loved movies. And just, you know, when I got that idea, I just like, it was like, oh, that's what I could do with my life. I could be a stuntman, you know. How did um, you get your first break? Well, look, you know, there was before the internet, so I, I looked up stunt in the phone book and I found a, an agency that represented stunt people. There was just like one phone number that I could find that had stunt in it somewhere. And I called them and I told them, you know, I was at, I, I think I just turned 18 and I said, I want, you know, I wanted to be a stunt man. And the lady who answered told me how hard it was to get into and was trying to talk me out of it, you know. 
but I was, I'd already made up my mind. That's what I was doing. So I just called her every week. You know, I think the next day I drove to where I looked up where the office was and I drove there and said, you know, I'm the guy called yesterday and what do I need to do? And I just harassed her. I was just a persistent kid, you know, and, and eventually I think she got so sick of me calling. She put me on to a stunt coordinator who was working on a film in the city uh, called Reckless Kelly, which was, uh, I don't know if you remember a film called Young Einstein. Yeah, of course. This Yahoo serious film. He, uh, it was the film he made after that and they were shooting it in the city. And the day I, I got to go to the set of that and, um, they were doing a shootout and blowing up a car. These guys were robbing a bank or something. And, yeah, and I got to meet some stunt performers, and I got their phone numbers, and and then found out they would they would go training every week. And so then I, you know, asked if I could tag along, and so that was kind of my way in. You know, I got people's numbers, and I would call them and just be persistent. And yeah, I trained with those guys. And I, I think the first job I got, you know, the stunt coordinator that was on that, he eventually was doing this. TV series here called Police Rescue, which was about, you know, like the rescue squad of the police department, you know, rescuing people, you know, stuck on cliffs and there's a car accident and people are trapped in the car. They have the equipment to like force the door open, that kind of stuff. It was that kind of show. And I started working in as, a, as an assistant on that. So when there was any stunts on, I would carry the pad bags and the boxes and the rope gear and anything that was involved with that. And uh, that was kind of my, my start. Do you remember your first stunt? I remember the first job I got. Yeah. I, um, I played a dead body in a, in a car accident. Um, like, the, you know, they, the, the police rescue squad were turning up this car accident and this girl had crashed her car and her boyfriend was dead in the car with her and they had to force the doors open. So that was the first, First one, I think the second one, I played another dead body. <laughs> in a, uh, it was at night time in a waterfall, and it was like a dead body lodged in the in the waterfall on the rocks, and they abseiled, you know, they rappelled down uh, and clipped a harness onto my dead body so they could get it out of there. And I remember it was winter time, and it was night in this water. It was freezing cold. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in a TV show. <laughs> I think I was face down in the water. You know, like a lot of time as it's done before me, you may just be put in an uncomfortable situation that they right. can't just put an extra in. So they were my first couple of gigs. I was like the young dead body. So you went on to have uh, and and do have quite the career uh, aside from your writing and directing and filmmaking as a stuntman. To yeah. what do you attribute that success? Was it that physicality? Is it uh, fearlessness? You know, look, I think the stunt performers that are somewhat successful are good performers. You know, like it's, you know, you can't just be technically good at the physical activity. It's about like, because you know, a lot of the times you get jobs where you have to say a few lines and then you get thrown down some stairs mm -hmm. or get in a fight and, uh, or if you're if you're doubling someone, you know you're kind of imitating the way they move. And I think I got quite into the performance side of it as well. And mm -hmm. I, also, I was a, I was just you know I'm six foot, kind of slim build, and I was just a good size in general. I don't look like a stunt guy, you know. Like 
I just look like a regular guy who could do physical stuff. And so I think I, you know, and I was uh, at, at the time in Sydney, I was probably the youngest guy doing it for a long time. Right. I read that you don't have formal training in filmmaking, but that being on so many sets as a stuntman, you just were learning the whole time. Was was it mostly passive observation or were you did you spend much time talking to directors and crew and, and, and picking their brains? Yeah, look, I didn't go to film school. I didn't know there was such a thing. I think if I'd known, I probably would have gone. I, I feel like being a stuntman on film sets was my my film school. I was just fascinated with the filmmaking process in general. So yeah, I'd always ask, talk to crew. I think what happened was, you know, I was trying to get work, you know, as a stunt stuntman. And I realized at some point that, you know, actors and stunt performers had showreels mm -hmm. that were made up of clips from movies that they'd worked on. And it seemed like well, you needed a showreel to show you'd worked on some movies to get a job to work on a movie. Right. And it was like this catch-22 thing mm -hmm. where, well, I can't get anything for my showreel because I, I can't get a job because I don't have a showreel, but I can't get anything for my showreel because I don't have a job. Right. And so I got this idea that, well, if the showreels are made up of clips from movies, all I have to shoot is just the clip from the movie. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, me and another stunt performer that I was – training with a lot tony lynch he had a video camera and we would go out and film ourselves doing stuff and rather than just filming ourselves doing a stunt we would make up a sequence and we would shoot it and put it together and you know make up the name of a movie we'd worked on and and then my brother at the time you know he'd just finished drama school and he was interested in being an actor and and uh and thought, oh, well, maybe that'll work for me too to get acting jobs, you know. So I said the same thing to him. I said, well, write a scene and get a friend and I'll shoot that and we'll put that on your showreel. We make up a name of a movie and just give the scene. And so we were making these sort of fake movie clips to make showreels from while trying to get work as actors and stuntmen. And, and that eventually turned into us making short films and – and so the more I was doing that, when I would get a job, I just got more and more fascinated with the making process. I mm. just, it became more than just passive observation. I was like actively trying to learn how to, to make things. And, uh, and I, you know, it didn't take long. Like we, you know, we eventually made, you know, the, the first short film we made is a short called Loaded and it played at some film festivals and, my brother and his friend Kieran were acting in it and me and Tony were doing the stunts in it and the four of us kind of made it together. And soon after it played at a film festival and Kieran and I got offered a job playing a couple of young thugs on a TV show because the director had seen our short film. Right. And we were like, oh, this actually works. Like us making stuff is creating work <laughs> opportunities for us, you know. And I got offered editing jobs because I, I was the one who edited it the four of us like just enjoyed the making process. And so we kept doing that while we were getting more and more work as actors and stuntmen. I uh, just finished reading a book by Ed Burns, the actor, mm. writer, director. And in it, he writes about making his first film. I don't know if you're familiar with it. The Brothers McMullen. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, for, I think the budget was $25,000. Wow. And 
And he later went on to make movies with budgets of, you know, millions. And, yeah. uh, and then in the book, he just talks about how frustrated, how often he was frustrated with the process of getting any project financed. And he, yeah. he would periodically just go back to just shooting the same way that he shot McMullen, filming yeah. with friends, filming in friends' uh, houses, uh, outdoors, you know, no permits, handheld, yeah. no dollies, no hair and makeup. And in preparing for my conversation with you, I saw that you've made short films for a few hundred dollars yourself. Uh, I read that loaded yeah. costs five seventy, and it's because you broke two windshields, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and fuel cost uh, a few hundred. I think it was nine hundred dollars. Uh, aside from from your mindset, do you have specific advice for someone trying to make a film on on a micro budget? How do you think you've been able to pull it off? I think me and my friends worked out early on that you know use what you have access to you know i guess when we started we didn't know you had to have permission to shoot in locations we didn't know you had to get permits and there was it was so few of us it was just such a small group so we would just go somewhere and then if someone told us we couldn't be there we'd move along and then, then when that person left we'd come back if we needed to or <laughs> we were making stuff with what we had access to whether it was our friend's house or the location down the street or and putting our friends in it and and just making things that we wanted to see with things that we could achieve you know we always would challenge ourselves and try and do something a little bit more but you know we didn't have a lot of money and, and we were just doing it with what we what we could do it with your first feature film the square came out mm. in in 2008 how did that project come about how did you make the jump to to make the square my brother had this idea for a film and he started writing it. He got a little bit of development money from a company. He wrote a draft and then when he thought it was ready, he shared it with me and I was like, oh, I'd really like to make this. And you know, at that point we'd made a handful of short films and I guess we'd started, you know, we'd had some success at, at film festivals with the short films and it just seemed like the natural progression was let's try and make a movie and my brother, had, you know, was getting better and better as a writer, and and so he wrote this thing, and and I was like, oh, I want to, I want to make this, and you know, and so I would direct it, and he would write it, and he would be in it, and uh, that was kind of the start of it. I watched the square for the first time earlier this week, and it's well, first of all, I loved it, um, oh, but you. it was it was hard to believe that that was your first feature film. Like just from the quality, like the outstanding quality of the directing and how tight and how uh, just how well it was done. It was it was unbelievable. And it was really just through you had done a handful of, of short films before that. Right. I mean, Spider, I think, believe had already come out to what do you attribute that natural ability to like nail it on your first try? I don't know. <laughs> like I remember being there and I remember doing. But I can't remember where ideas come from, you know, like. You know, I don't know if it's a combination of pressure and fear and instinct and, you know, you just sort of trying to make decisions on the spot. It's, a, you know, directing is a lot of pressure and you get asked a lot of questions. And, you know, I'd see, uh, have an idea in my mind how I wanted to put something together. I think the fact that I'd done a lot of editing by then, just by out of necessity, when we started making short films, we couldn't get anyone to work on them. So we kind of had to do everything. And one of us needed to edit, and I tried to teach myself how to edit. 
I think editing is a very essential tool for a director to have some kind of background in, because when you're directing, you know, you're collecting pieces that are going to make up the whole film and, you know, under the time pressure or weather is affected or whatever's going on, you, you know, you always have in your mind, I want to get all of these things. And then there's the reality of the sun is only up for so long and you can only work for so many hours. You can only be in this location for, we can only afford this location for a day. So you're having to narrow down what your expectations are. And the more you understand how to edit it together, you can make, you know, informed choices on, okay, well, I can live without that shot because I'm going to get this piece. And, and I think editing has helped me, you know, like I can imagine how I'm going to edit it together when I'm shooting a lot of the time. I was going to touch on this a bit later, but I, I listened to an interview with Matt Damon and he was talking about shooting Saving Private Ryan with Steven Spielberg and yeah. how Spielberg had some of those setups. He had, you know, eight, nine, ten cameras running at once and how as they were watching playback, Matt Damon was just talking about how Spielberg could already, he was already cutting, he was already editing and knowing that, and here we're going to go here and there and cut. And I understand that, you know, good directors can do what you just described you did, which is you're editing as you're shooting, or at least making a, a log of the pieces that you need to put together and th thinking of the edit down the line. Anytime I have like a, a, a set piece, you know, like this, an action sequence, you know, which involves planning. I will go out with a few friends and a video camera and I will test my ideas, you know, try and block out the, the action and sort of do a test shoot for it. You know, like, okay, how's this action sequence going to go? And I'll shoot all the pieces without the whole crew there, without thinking about like the lighting or the makeup or the design. It's just what is the mechanics of what we're trying to achieve? And I'll shoot it uh, with this video camera and then edit that together and maybe I'll go back and refine it. And so I'll have a bit of a blueprint, like a moving storyboard to be able to show the crew or the actors, this is what I'm trying to do. And so then these are the pieces we're going to collect. And so when you don't have a lot of time and money, um, then when you show up with the crew and you've already edited it together and it's not like always exactly, but it's the guide, you know, mm -hmm. and then I can, Go, okay, we, we only need this piece. I only need this piece for this long, and then I need this piece. And so rather than getting coverage of multiple angles, because I've already ed edited it together, I'm only getting the pieces I need. And that, I found, was a lot more time efficient. And I did that for, like, almost half of the square because I knew I was, you know, it was a low-budget film, and so I planned a lot of it beforehand. And I think that helped a lot. Too. And I, I still use that technique if I'm doing something that I find challenging or I think needs to be thought out. Because, you know, a lot of time you'll get there with the actors and, you know, you'll have a discussion and you'll block out the scene and then you'll find what the scene's meant to be and then you have to come up with the shots on the spot, which, you know, I, I enjoy as well. And in, in, a, in a piece of drama, you know, there's a bit more freedom to do that. But once you've got, like, you know, cars crashing or things being set on fire there needs to be some a bit of thought and plan a bit more thoroughly planned out your uh, second feature film uh, gringo 
came out in 2018 and I watched that a night after watching The Square. And while they share uh, many elements, right, and they're clearly your films, Gringo came out 10 years later and presumably had a, a larger budget. How do you compare the experience making each of those films? They were very different. You know, The Square, I was terrified because you just like, can I make a movie? <laughs> you right. know? And um, you're just trying to you're trying to learn how to make a movie while making a movie because it's not like something you can you just don't have an understanding of the pressure until you're doing it. I think Gringo, yeah, Gringo is definitely bigger and you know a lot more a lot more locations and moving around in different countries. And I think I you know I didn't have the fear of can I make a movie because I'd done it before, so I knew what it is possible to do. Gringo, I didn't have as much, I didn't, you know, I didn't have the actors as available to rehearse. So I was rehearsing when shooting, you know, or just on the day of shooting. And so that, that element was just different. But I, I, I enjoyed that process too, because it, it kept it fresh. I think there's a, you know, there's kind of a balance to that, but it, it came with a level of, of, uh, of fear to it as well. I think I just, you know, between making The Square and, and Gringo, I made a few other short films. And, uh, and the music videos? Music videos, and I'd worked on other people's films and had other life experiences. And when you're directing, it feels like you're just trying to solve the day. Mm -hmm. You know, like at the start, you try, you know, you've got this whole mountain ahead of you where you're trying to, like, get all the pieces in place. But the beauty of shooting is you just have the problems at hand of the day to solve. And I think that was, you know, I think I started to realize that more when I was making Gringo than I had before that all I got to do is get through the day. Like I've just got to collect the pieces and, and tomorrow is a new day. Because, you know, some days you feel like, oh, I got some really great stuff today. And other days you're like, oh, I just that I couldn't get that scene to work. <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to try and figure that out in the edit suite or, or, you know, maybe we have to reshoot a piece of it. And you, you're constantly going through these ups and downs. I feel like it's generally part of most people's creative processes. You have days where it's great and days where it's not. And the thing that gets you through is knowing that I've had good days before, so it, it's bound to happen again, right. you know. Gosh, I forget where I read that, but I read that, that there are <laughs> – that there are essentially three different films. There's the one you wrote, the one, yeah. you sh the one you shoot, and then the one you cut. And that they yeah. can oftentimes just be very different. Totally. Yeah, I, 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 I feel it every time I make something. You know, because you have something in your mind that you, you're planning and then, you know, it's a collaborative art form. So you can imagine it one way and then as you're putting the pieces together, it's like the combination of actors and crew you get and, as a director, you're you're inviting so many other people's ideas. Everyone reads the script and how they interpret it, and you know, actors or crew will come to you. I was thinking this for this scene, and you're like, "Oh, that's a great idea," or you'd say, oh, "No, look, I I kind of want it to be more like this." And that conversation makes the scenes or the film evolve. And then you get into the post production and the editing, and, it, and you're involving more people. You know, the editors and sound sound designer and the composer and so all of those influences shape 
the movie, you know. So the script is this template that everyone is inspired by. And as the director, you're kind of managing the ideas from various people and the, you know, the collaboration and the conversations you have. And so, yeah, it's, it always, uh, I feel like evolves. Right. And hopefully for the better. I'd like to take a minute to talk about what has quickly become one of my favorite TV shows of all time, which is Mr. Inbetween. Yeah, in, in 2005, you produced, I believe, and edited The Magician, which was the mockumentary in which we first meet uh, the character of Ray Shoesmith, the, the hitman played and written by Scott Ryan. How did you join that team? Well, I had a short film playing at the St. Kilda Film Festival in Melbourne. It was a short film I made called Fuel. And, you know, I was at the festival and I'd go to different programs to watch other short films to see what other people had made. And one of the films in one of the programs was a film called The Magician. It was a 30-minute short. Oh, so it was, it was already done? It was cut? Scott had made the film. I didn't know this at the time. He'd made the film and had been trying to shop it around and get interest in it. And it wasn't really, he wasn't really getting anywhere with it. And so he cut it down to 30 minutes and entered this short film festival. And so he just took one of the storylines from the, from the feature and put it in that. And that's where I saw it, you know, in the, the theater where it was playing at, I, he was there afterwards. And I recognized him from the film and went up to him and told him how much I liked it. And, and I asked him if I could get a copy of it, you know, because I wanted to show my brother. My brother had, had shot a couple of tests, sort of a fake documentary about a security guard working in a mall. The style of the magician was very much similar to what my brother had been describing. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, he would, I think he should see this. I think he'd like it. And so Scott hands me this DVD and says, well, it's actually a feature film. And I'm saying, but have you got a copy of what I just saw? And he said, no, I've only got the full film i'm trying to get interest in the film and so i uh, i took that away with me and and i got to see the whole film it wasn't as well edited as the half hour short film was and so i could see why he was having trouble getting interest in it because you know it's super low budget it was made on a you know mini dv camera and i think you know he'd been sending it around he didn't know any people, you know, any distributors, and he just cold send it to them. And if you'd watch the first 10 minutes of the original cut of the film, you'd, you'd probably go, well, it's just like a home movie. And, you know, whatever happened, it just wasn't getting, he wasn't getting any traction. But because I'd seen the half-hour film, I thought, I, you know, as much as it wasn't very well edited to begin with, the, the film did get better as it went along. And I rang him say how much I enjoyed it and I know some of these distributors and I will make them watch it and uh, he said well if you if you do that you know I'll give you a producer credit and I said well look to be honest if you can put my name on it uh, I think the film needs to be re-edited and he asked if I would help him with that and mm -hmm. and I said sure and I, I thought it would only take me a couple of weeks to do but I was interested to see everything that he'd shot so I could see what the material there was and and so he offered to, you know, he gave me all the material and, and then, you know, I set about recutting the film. You know, I hadn't produced a film before other than, you know, making my own short films. And so I got a, this lady, Michelle Bennett, who mm -hmm. 
you know, I've worked, I'd worked with a lot doing music videos and she'd produced this great film called Chopper. The first, yeah, you know, the I've heard of it. Kind of Eric broke, Banner? Yeah, broke Eric Banner, yeah. And she produced that, which I loved, and I showed her, you know, what I'd been working on with The Magician and she really liked it and she came on to help me produce the film and, and we, yeah, we got a distributor involved and got it released. And so that's, that's where it kind of began with um, working with Scott. The first season of Mr. In Between came out in 2018. Uh, what happened over that 13 year span between the magician and Mr. In Between? Did it, did you kind of walk away from it and then come back to it? Or were you trying to get it made the whole time? So soon after that, maybe a year later, Scott had this idea to make a TV series based on the character. This is in 2006 and we got some development money and he started working on some scripts for it. And, uh, you know, it was a half hour drama and no one really made any half hour dramas, you know, and we shopped it around and we tried for a couple of years to try and get it made and just weren't really getting anywhere. You know, we wanted Scott to star in it and, you know, other than the magician, he'd not done anything else. And we just struggled to get it made. You know, it was before any of the streaming services were right. around. And, you know, at that point, you know, I hadn't made The Square. Um, you know, at some point, Scott was like, you know, I don't have to be in it. You can cast someone else. And, you know, originally he was going to direct the show. I, Michelle and I were just going to produce it. and He was going to write, direct and star in it. And we weren't getting any interest in that happening. And, and then eventually, like, you know, someone had suggested, what if someone else directs it? And he said... You know, he'd be open to me doing it, and so I was interested in directing. And so we shopped it around with me as the director, and and still we weren't having much luck getting the show up. We did come close a few times, but people wouldn't, you know, agree to Scott starring it, and I wouldn't agree to directing it unless he starred in it. Mm -hmm. And so we just come to a standstill. You know, Scott kind of started driving cabs down in Melbourne, and you know, I kept on making other things. And anytime I would meet people who I thought would be interested in it. I would show them the magician and show them some of the scripts and, you know, I'd get some interest here and there. And eventually in 2016, I got some interest again from a network here in Australia and eventually got to make the show like quite low budget, but with him starring and me directing. My aim was just to prove what the show could be and how good he could be in it. And, sort of once I got to shoot something, then it got to become real. I can't think of a better match than your directing style and Scott's material. It is phenomenal. I'm so happy that eventually it worked out. How, how did the process of collaborating with Scott and that I understand he wrote every episode, you directed every episode. How did that turn out? The, the results are evident. They're incredible. But what was the experience like? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, he and I are quite different people, but we have a very similar sense of humor. And I think we had a similar, you know, idea of what we thought the show was. And, you know, from the beginning of when I, when I first saw The Magician, I just got it. And I, you know, I love, I loved the humor, the dark humor in it. And then when people would come to my house, I'd want to show them scenes from it. And there's something about the combination of he and I that worked. Generally, the process was, was pretty good, you know. Um, you know, we didn't agree on everything all the time, but generally we did, you know, in terms of where we thought the character needed to go, casting people, 
you know, what dialogue should stay, what should go, all those things. But just generally, I think the tone and the humour of it, we were on the same page. As good as The Magician was, I, I feel like its mockumentary format required that Ray narrate and explain and just talk a lot more than, sure, he, yeah. than he later did in, in Mr. Inbetween. And I think the character really benefits in Mr. Inbetween from not having to do that. Because being taciturn and guarded is such a core part of of the character in Mr. Inbetween. It's, it's phenomenal. And I feel like that was... That was one way in which I feel the character changed for the better. Do you feel the character changed or evolved in many other ways in between the, the magician and Mr. Inbetween? Yeah, I look, I agree with you. I think the silence, the show lives in the silences a lot. And one of the things I did to the magician when I recut it was add some silence into that as well. You know, there's a scene in The Magician where once he takes the guy, he's kidnapped the guy and he's going to kill him, makes him you know, dig a hole, and then Tony offers the money and they go on that road trip to the farm to retrieve supposedly the money. You know, there was a scene where they just they get hamburgers and they sit in a, in a park and eat them. Now, in the film, the original film I saw, there was a whole conversation there and when I was going through the material, there was just some silent stuff of them just eating the burgers. And uh, Tony has his hands cut, has handcuffs on, and they're just sitting in silence eating. It was just like an outtake. And I, I was sort of craving there to be some quiet moments in the film, and so I would cut things like that in. Yeah. And Scott was quite resistant to start with, and uh, but I was like, I just feel like there needs to be some silence and. You know, I remember when it played at the Sydney Film Festival, that was one of the things that audience commented on, how much they liked those moments. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of knew already when I was going in to make the show that there was some power to that. To like, And the character, I, I find the character is more dangerous and Oh, so much more menacing and yeah. just yeah, when, layered. Yeah, when he's not talking. And so I tried to inject as a lot of that in whenever I was making episodes for the show because, you know, it's good to, as an audience, just to be like wondering what he's thinking and, and not always knowing what he's going to do. You know, the more unpredictable he was, the more fascinating I found the character. Oh, definitely. The show and, and what you did with it and Scott's performance in it. I'm a huge fan. It's oh, unbelievably good. I wanted to touch on something else. I read a, an interview with Jason Bateman in which he said that he would love to direct every episode of uh, Ozark, his show. I don't know if you've watched yeah. it. Also very dark, very good. But I, I haven't yet. It's on my many list of things to watch. I think you'd enjoy it. It's, it's it. definitely dark. I think you'd really enjoy it. But my point was that Jason Bateman directed uh, a few of the episodes. And uh, he said that he would love to be able to direct every episode but that it just wasn't feasible because of all the prep work and that he he wouldn't have time to do so and that it just wasn't viable for him to direct every episode. Uh, and granted, he he acts in every episode, right? So he's, he's pulling double duty. I was impressed when I read that you directed, and correct me if I'm mistaken, but all 26 episodes of Mr. Inbetween. Is that right? I did, yeah. Did you at any point consider, did you and Scott consider bringing aboard 
on board any other directors or was the plan for for it to be you all along? I mean, for all the episodes. Uh, it wasn't the plan from the beginning. We talked about it in the first season, but we had so little money, you know, and I hadn't made any TV before, so I shot it like it was a movie. I just, you know, in that way, you know, if you're shooting a film, like everything that's set in Ray's house, you just do or, you know, in a movie, you would just shoot all the scenes in the house now. Right. And then you'd shoot all the scenes in this location here now. You know, it, normally when you're doing episodic television, okay, if I'm directing the first two episodes, I do all the locations for that episode. And the next next director comes in and does theirs. You know, each episode, you're in Ray's house. So the crew would go into that location, out to another one. Then the next director would bring them back to that location. Right. And so you're going to the same locations multiple times with the crew. When there's one director, you only have to go to that location once. Do, you know, so I would shoot on any given day. I might shoot scenes from episodes three, five, and six. Oh, wow. You know? um, and so I'm jumping around through the whole thing. So it, it's blocked like you would block a movie. And so because of our budget, it felt you know, it was going to be more viable if I just did it all. I guess what happened next was – you know, my daughter, Chica, and we ended up casting her to play Brittany. And I had so much fun making it with her that when, you know, when FX eventually came on board, to, you know, bought the show and wanted to develop a second season, they were asking if I would direct all of it. And I was like, well, it was another opportunity to work with my daughter and, and so I just said yes. And, you know, I guess what it had worked the first time, so it made sense to try and do it again, even though we did even more episodes. It was a way more challenging season, season two. It was a lot bigger, and I just couldn't imagine anyone else getting to you – know, I, I, was, I was like, I don't want anyone else to get to have that experience working with Chicka. I wanted to do it. <laughs> did you um, shoot seasons two and three the same way? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. This sounds naive in, in hindsight, but I remember when I first learned, when I was first getting interested in filmmaking and I learned about movies being shot out of sequence, right? Uh, mm. uh, because yeah. as, as a kid, I thought it was chronological, right? Like it's scene by scene and, and, and that's how they shot yeah. the movie. Me too. And I remember just reading, I, I couldn't tell you what movie it was, but how they, they would shoot the very final scene of the movie first, like the first week, and then just jump all over the place. And I, I understood why, right? The logistics of it. But yeah. I always wondered if it posed, if it was challenging for the, the actors to kind of, to, to not be able to follow the same arc that their characters were following and to maybe film you know, a very sentimental, tragic scene where their car character had gone already undergone and completed this arc first and then jumped to the middle and then to the beginning. Did you find as a director there to be any challenges there trying to work with the actors as you were shooting an entire season at the same time? Yeah, totally. It's, you know, I think it's just part of it. You know that you have to shoot things out of order. Um, but, you know, that being said, there are a number of times I'll look at... I'll say, look, I know we have to shoot this out of order, but I don't want to shoot this before I shoot that. You mm -hmm. know, there's certain scenes that I feel like are important to do before other ones because they inform mm -hmm. what's coming. And then there's other scenes that like it, it doesn't feel like it matters as much. 
So, you know, I'll usually weigh in on the schedule in terms of an order of shooting things. But, you know, you also have to understand the financial and the logistics and, you know, and so sometimes it's sort of out of your control. But as much as you can, you try and shoot certain things in an order that makes sense dramatically. When I first watched the show, I was convinced that Scott just had to be some incredibly well-known and accomplished Australian actor that I wasn't familiar with and that he had likely won a ton of awards and done a ton of movies and likely done theater. And I was shocked when I looked him up and learned that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, really he's, he's played Ray in The Magician. It, yeah. And he is so good, like so yeah. good. Do you think we'll see him act in anything else or is he just not interested? I don't know. I think he's interested. You know, I'm curious too whether he'll do, you know, whether he'll play other characters or do other things. I guess time will tell. He definitely has a great natural ability in front of camera, you know, and like season one of the show was his first proper acting gig in front of a crew you know like when he made the magician it's with his friends and a video camera but he has a great ability to be natural in front of a camera and you know it really informed how the other actors you know i had actors who'd been doing it for a long time uh, acting opposite him and i had some like you know, inexperienced actors and he you know his style of acting kind of informed how everyone else performed mm -hmm. in a good way for the show one of the reasons the show took so long to get made was because no one would let me cast him and then of course it's like where did you find this guy he's so great <laughs> it's like it's the same guy i've been saying for all these years should be the i just had an instinct that i you know after watching the magician i and and having spent a bit of time with him that i thought he would be able to carry the show there was just something i found fascinating about him on camera that I was interested in directing. And the whole reason I w was interested in making the show was to, to shoot him, you know. I wanted to, to touch a little on some of the mechanics and the, the way you direct. Some directors are known for shooting an ungodly amount of takes. Um, I read that David Fincher wrote, uh, pardon me, shot some scene in, in an episode of Mindhunter 75 times. And, yeah. uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick wrote, shot some scene in The Shining, I think it was like 148 times. And, yeah. and then you read about um, directors like Clint Eastwood that I understand shoot one, two takes. He'll and then shoot they, the rehearsal. Yeah, and then they move on. What is your approach? Or does it, I mean, I imagine it's context sensitive, right? And it changes and it depends on the scene. But do you tend to shoot a lot of takes? Do you let the actors kind of try it their way for a few times and then weigh in? How do you approach it? I just keep shooting until I feel like I've got it. You know, and it's not a ridiculous amount, you know. Sometimes I'll shoot one or two. Sometimes I'll shoot 10 or 12, you know. It all depends on the scene and the moment and, you know, if it's working. You know, I try and get a, a, a decent amount of coverage so I have options. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I'll shoot until I feel like I've got it, but... I don't feel like I overdo it, but it matters, you know, like I want it to be good. So I will yeah. shoot until it's right. I've listened to many interviews with directors and, and listen 
to how they direct actors, right? And how they give mm-hmm. notes. And for example, I, uh, you know, Tarantino is, is a specific way and, and he in super high energy and has a very clear vision. Um, I understand Spielberg is incredibly gentle and lets the actors do their thing and gives very subtle and, and few notes. And the, the other thing about directors that I find interesting that doesn't apply to you is that most directors have never seen other directors at work. Right. They know the way that they do it. And they oftentimes haven't been in on other sets and don't know how other directors work. You've had the privilege through your work as a stuntman to see a a, as an actor and and your brother's work to witness a number of different directors and, and how they work. Can you think of any habits or techniques that you've picked up from from any of these directors that that you emulate or that you've you've added to the way that you direct? Oh, I'm sure I, I do all the time. Take from other directors. You're asking before about you know how do I let the actors do their thing and then give notes. Generally, yes. I you know I feel like a huge part of directing is casting. If you cast stuff right, a lot of the work is done. You know, you know you cast the right actor, they will come and they'll bring the character to life they'll bring ideas and then it's a matter of just guiding them and ultimately you know you know you know no matter how amazing an audition is you're trying to find the right combination of people right that that you'll feel will all belong in the same show you know sometimes you watch a movie or a tv show and you feel like people are acting in different movies right and uh and there's something i think wrong going on there where the director is not conveying the tone or is not guiding the actors. I think the more you can, you know, create an environment where people understand what, what the tone is, what the show is, what the film is, then there's a bit more freedom to play within that. But you're constantly trying to, you know, make sure everyone feels like they're, they're in the same same show no matter you know because you you're dealing with actors that are some that are really experienced some that have no experience some that are kids you know sometimes i use non-actors i cast a lot of directors sometimes because i like having other directors around some people love to rehearse some don't like to rehearse at all some like turn up knowing the script word for word some haven't learned their lines some uh, you know are good at ad libbing. Some like need to stick to exactly what's there. So you know, and some need a lot of direction. Some don't like it, and so you're trying to figure out every person's uh, way of working and finding a way to have them all work well together. Your method has kind of got to be a bit fluid. You know, you're sort of adapting to what's in front of you and finding the best way to get the best out of you know each person that works with the combination of people you've assembled. As a last question, I wanted to ask you about how you collaborate with your DPs in terms of of framing, shots, camera movement, lens selection. How do you collaborate with your DPs? Uh, I love cinematographers. You know, I've been lucky to work with some great ones. And mostly, you know, it starts with just having a conversation about what the show is or the film is and then you know they 
your DP really becomes your ally, you know, and it's like you guys are making this together. I try, I put a lot of trust in my cinematographer and, and we just start, you know, first talk about the film overall or the show overall and then you start breaking down the specifics, you know, you know, what we're trying to find in this scene or how we want it to look or feel or, and you're just trying to find it together. And I feel like, you know, some of your best ideas can come from, cinematographer and production designer and you know because sometimes people read it and it's set in a specific location and they're like what if it was set here instead or what if it's at night instead or what if it's mm-hmm. raining or you know and you sort of it's just a it's a conversation about like what else can what else can we bring to the scene visually there's obviously the words or the scenario that's going to happen but what else can be part of that picture and so yeah i love that collaboration with the cinematographer. Nash, I can't tell you how much I I appreciate your time. What a huge fan I've I've become initially of Mr. In Between, uh, later of all your other work. I can't wait to see what you do next. I'm tremendously grateful that you took the time to speak with me. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was great to talk to you as well.